you're able to remain standing and turn to Psalm 119. We are going to read the Tassadi section, that's verse 137 and following. Psalm 119, verse 137 through 144. You're going to see in English the word righteousness or righteous quite a bit because that word starts with this letter Tassadi um, throughout this particular stanza. As you know, each one of these verses start with the same Hebrew letter. So each eight verses start with the same Hebrew letter, and that's why we have 22 stanzas in this psalm. So Psalm 119, verse 137, this is the word of our Lord. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies, which you have commended, are righteous and very faithful. My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delights. The righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall live. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, in heaven we pray that you open our eyes, that we might see glorious things concerning you in this passage. For us, in Jesus' name, we all say, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This stanza is structured differently than a lot of the other stanzas in in this psalm. The usual structure of these stanzas, again, there's 22 of them, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Each one of them, or most of them, are structured that follows a pattern that the, the... the other seven verses follow. So the, the, usually the first verse in the stanza gives us a thesis or a statement, and then the other seven verses develop that. For example, if you look at uh, uh, verse 97, that's the mem section, it starts with how I love your law, and then every other verse in that stanza develops that thought, explains what love in the, Lord, the law of the Lord means, and how he's doing that. Now, the Tzadi stanza, the one that we just read, is turned upside down. Instead of having that, uh, that um, uh, mission statement or hypothesis or thesis on the very first verse, each verse builds upon the previous one to culminate in the last verse of the stanza. It's all pointing to this statement, give me understanding and I shall live in verse 149, uh, 144. Each one of the verses is building up to that point. And as the psalmist builds up to this great heart-deep plea for a life-giving understanding of the Word of God, the psalmist then outlines eight foundational principles for the Christian life. And we see that in each one of the verses. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through these eight foundational principles for the Christian life that culminate with this plea, this prayer that the Lord would give us life-giving understanding of His Word, that we might live for His glory. So, here we go. Principle number one. God is, God is who He says He is. God is who He says He is. In verse 137, the psalmist says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. 
God is righteous. This means that He is perfect in all His ways. If that wasn't the case, we would be in big trouble. If He was more wrath than mercy, if He was more justice than kindness, if He was, if he was more of one thing than the other, we would be in trouble. But God is perfect. All His attributes work together in perfect harmony. You can't really divide those attributes of God. They all are together, working in simplicity in the presence of uh, of his people in the entire universe. So we take what the Bible says concerning God and accept it all as true, a true description of who God is. Whatever the Bible says about God, that's who God is. We take the things that we understand and we take the things we don't understand. Now we have to be careful as Christians, as people in general, that we don't make God after our own image. We have a tendency to want to do that. When confronted with scriptural truths about God, especially the ones that we find hard to swallow, we may be tempted to say, or at least to think, oh, my God won't do that, or my God is not like that. Well, if your God is something less than what the Bible describes him to be, then he's not the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible is who he says he is. Usually when you say, oh, my God is not like that, or my God won't do that, usually what we're saying by that is that we would not do that, or we wouldn't be that way. I remember a few years ago when the transgender bathroom use controversy first broke out on the Y where I go swimming, uh, I went to talk with one of the managers who I knew professed faith in Christ. I tried to lay out a biblical argument why it was not a good idea to let people use whatever bathrooms they wanted. Uh, the arguments included the truth that uh, gender is not something that is independent from biology. Her response to me was that her God wasn't the kind of God that wouldn't allow people to be who they think they are. It sounds good and sounds profound and sounds loving, but it's just not the God of the Bible because God is who he says he is in the Bible. And when we don't submit to whom God says he is, we really are walking away from biblical Christianity into some other religion. So, basic to Christian faith is that God is who he says he is. Uh, uh, William Plummer, is a, he wrote a commentary on the Psalms and on Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. So, and he's all kind of, <laughs> It's almost like the same commentary, but on different books of the Bible. But it, it, he says a lot of good things in both of them. And he says that the character of God is the foundation of all holy joy. We think that by changing God, we're going to be happier. But the character of God, allowing God to be who he says he is, is really the foundation from holy joy. So foundational principle number one from, from, from Psalm 119, verse 137. God is who he says he is. Foundational principle number two. God's word is like himself, it is righteous and trustworthy. God's word is like himself, it is righteous and trustworthy. Look at the end of verse 137, he says, And upright are your judgments. And then in verse 138, he says, Your testimonies which you have, you have commended are righteous and very faithful. God is righteous, and what he says is righteous as well. What he says is consistent with whom he is. You can't separate God from His Word. Now, some people say that they believe in God, 
but his word is not true. Uh, somehow there is a God, and they believe that there is a God, and, and, and so on, but somehow the word is not true. And yet, you can't divorce those two. Because there's no way to know that there is a God, the true God of the Bible, apart from his word. You cannot honor God without honoring his ways, his words. So basic to Christianity is the idea that the word of God is perfect and can be trusted. It's a basic principle. It's not something nice. It's not a secondary matter. It's foundational to Christianity that God is perfect and can be trusted. If you start denying the Bible, any part of the Bible, you might as well just deny the whole thing. Because all of it either stand together or fall together. You can't pick. You cannot follow Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was well known for uh, literally cutting out the Bible. He would get the Bible and cut the pieces that he didn't like out. And then put uh, glue the pieces that he liked in. That's not Christianity. That's something else. Foundational principle number three. God's people have a passion for God's word. God's people have a passion for God's word. In verse 139, the psalmist says, My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. In the couple last stanzas that we've seen, the psalmist expresses great zeal for the word of God in terms of indignation, of anger, really, toward those who break it. In verse 118, he says, You reject all those who stray from your statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. In 126, he says, It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have disregarded your word. In 136, he says, Rivers of water run down my eyes because men do not keep your word. You can see this great passion for the word of God. And that is part of the essence of Christianity. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, basic to your faith is a great passion for God's word. The Christian is displeased when the word of God is broken, when it is disrespected, when it is run through the mud. And he or she should be displeased with that. But we have to be as displeased with the breaking of God's word in our own heart as we are when others out there break it. We're really good at being super angry and indignant and raise our arms and, and uh, protest against those out there that are breaking the word of God. It is easy to get angry when other people break God's word. But the evidence of Christian zeal for the Bible is when we are angrier and more ruthless about our own personal sins instead of the sins of others. That's basic to Christianity, that we're more concerned about our own sins and how our sins have grieved God more than the sins of others. Yes, let's protest. Let's be upset when the word of God is broken all over. But primary, first of all, let's look at our own heart. How are we personally breaking the word of God? And is that... Is that upsetting us? And now we repent for that. That was throughout, we found that throughout the, the teaching of Jesus. Jesus often taught on that. It's, for example, in Matthew 7, starting verse 1 through verse 5, you remember uh, where Jesus says, You hypocrite, first take the beam or the log or the big, huge plank that comes out of your eye before you can deal with the speck in somebody else's eyes. The principle there is that a believer in Jesus Christ is always looking at his or her own sin first, her own, 
her, his or her own heart first, repenting of that before addressing somebody else's sins. Because we have great passion for God's word and what it says concerning sin. Principle number four, foundational principle number four, God's people can count on God's promises. Look at verse 140. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I think the ESV does a great job in translating this verse. It says this, your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. The psalmist says that he tested God's promises and God never let him down. That's, that's the experience of the psalmist and that's the experience of the Christian. That the word of God is proven, as Psalm 1830 says. It's tested, it's, it's stood, it has withstood the test of time and circumstances and we love it. So God's people can count on his promises. Now, the promises sometimes may come about in the most unexpected ways. We may not be the best ones designed to figure out how those promises are going to happen, but they, they come, and they come in unexpected ways. Sometimes they may not be fulfilled when we think they should be fulfilled. But they always come to pass. So, uh, an example that comes to mind is Joseph in the Bible. So Genesis 37 through 50 is the story of Joseph in the Bible. Remember how it goes? As a teenager, he's given this great dream. Uh, first, he sees the different sheaves bowing down to his sheaf. Sheaf? Yes. They're bowing down. The, the different bunches of wheat and barley bowing down to his bunch of barley. And he says, hey, brothers, guess what I dreamed? You guys are all going to serve me. So he didn't have a great attitude about the promise either. So, and the brothers start disliking him. And then he has another dream in which... Even the sun and the moon and all the heavenly hosts bow down to him. And he, get, he calls the family all together. Say, Mom and Dad, brothers, I come. I'm going to tell you about my dream in which you all are going to bow down to me. So he had issues uh, uh, there as well. But he, uh, the brothers get upset. But the promise that God gave that all his family was going to bow down to him. And then what's ne- what happens next? Well, the brothers get super upset. So, you know, let's kill him. Reuben intercedes. Says, so, no, let's keep him in this hole for a little bit, and let's see what we're going to do. And they're all feasting. Now, as he's, as he's pleading for his life from the bottom of this hole, the brothers are feasting that now they're going to get rid of him. That's the fulfillment of the promise, right? The brother, brother. Reuben says, oh, let's not try to earn little brownie points with, with Jacob. Says, no, let's not kill him. <coughs> and then he goes back to prepare the way to bring Joseph back. And as, in his absence, the other brothers sell Joseph to a caravan of Bedouins or some nomad tribe to slavery. Reuben comes back, the hole is empty. The promise was that all the brothers were going to bow down to him. Now he's a slave to a nomad tribe. Well, you know what happens next? That tribe sells him to slavery and to a high-ranking officer in the court of Pharaoh that we know by the name of Potiphar. And he serves the Lord faithfully in that home. And he's righteous in his behavior. He does such a great job that Potiphar makes him the manager of his household. But Potiphar's wife wants a piece of Joseph. And Joseph resists, resists her. And because, because, not in spite of, because of his righteousness, because of his righteous behavior according to what he knew about God, he is sent to jail on false accusations. And now he spends years in jail 
for a crime he'd never committed. What happened to the promise that I'm going to be exalted and everyone's going to bow down to me? Joseph could be thinking that way. But he continued to serve the Lord faithfully in jail to the point that the jailer, the chief jailer, thinks, man, this guy is good. He puts him in charge of all the other prisoners. Then the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker are put in jail. The butcher and, no, the baker and the butler, right? The cupbearer are put in jail. And they have dreams, and Joseph interprets their dreams. The cupbearer is going to be restored to his position with with Pharaoh, and then the baker is going to lose his head uh, because of whatever it is that he did. Um, Pharaoh didn't really like the bread on that day or something like that. And the only thing that Joseph says, remember me when you get out of jail. Two years go by, no remembers, till Pharaoh has a particular dream, and the uh, cupbearer says, you know what? What's his name? I, I came across this guy in jail that helped me out. Maybe we can get... And eventually Joseph's brought before Pharaoh. And now he's in his early 30s. The promise was given to him in his mid-teens. 15 plus years. But guess what? The promises all came to pass, even if they came about in a very unexpected way. That was true of our Lord Jesus Christ as well. He was promised a people in eternity past. The Father promised them a people. He received His people, but through the miseries of the Incarnation and the death on the cross. And in both examples, all the promises God made to them absolutely came to pass. And that's foundation to the Christian faith. All God's promises will come to pass. Even if we can't figure out when or how, they all will come to press. Principle number five. God's people don't mind being held in contempt and being thought of as small. God's people don't mind being held in contempt and being thought of as small or as little, as inconsequential, as of no importance. Verse 141, the psalmist says, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. This is our current reality. If you follow the word of God, you will be held in contempt and you're going to be thought of as small. That's, that's, that's how it is. That's a guarantee. We're past the time in our culture that Christians have any say in what goes on. We've passed a time where Christians have any, that anybody cares about what. It's been a couple hundred years since that was the case. That, that nobody cares about us. As a matter of fact, being a Christian is something that is, brings contempt upon you. I was visiting with a family that was part of our church that moved to Georgia. And uh, uh, she was saying that in, in a lot of ways she preferred here because here it's clear nobody likes Christians and nobody pretends to be, at least not, you know, generally speaking, pretends to be Christians because the, there's no cultural benefit. The culture is so against it. And that's how it is in most of the world as well. If the, the, the temptation that we face, though, is to forsake the Word of God for approval or to forsake the Word of God for a meaningful role in society. Our culture does not approve of what this book says. 
if you're looking down, I'm raising, I'm holding the Bible up. The, the culture does not approve what this book says. So if we are people of the book, we're going, you're guaranteed to be despised, to be held in contempt, and to be think, thought of as small, inconsequential, irrelevant to where we are. And you have to decide if you're going with this book or you're going with the world. And it's getting harder and harder for us and for our young people. So we must pray for them. And we must model to them what it looks like to not mind to be held in contempt and thought of as small to them. Grown-ups, older people, 40-pluses. If you're 40-plus, if you're willing, raise your hand. If you're 40 plus, high up in the sky. There we go. Come on, Emily, put it up there. <laughs> At least us 40 pluses. Are we okay with our days of small things? Are you okay with being held in contempt? Because we need to lead the next generation in that. We need to model to them. We need to be okay like the guy that got five talents in which the Lord at the end said, you were faithful to me in the small things. Enter into the rest, prepare it for you before the foundation of the world. So 40 pluses, are we willing to lead the church in Jesus Christ in being small and despised? We have, we have to model that for our younger people. Our Lord was despised. That, that was his, one of his characteristics in this life. He was despised. And because of that, our Father highly exalted him. Do we want to be exalted by the Father or by our neighbor? By our society, by our classmates, by our work co-workers? The Lord Jesus, uh, the Apostle Paul says this, that the Lord chose the weak things of this world, the despised things of this world, the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And it is in those things that we glory in, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, foundational to, Christian, to the Christian faith, basic to the Christian faith, is understanding that if you follow the Bible, you're going to be despised, you're going to be held in contempt, and you're going to be thought of as small. And, you're okay with, and are you okay with that? Our Lord was okay with that. He let God exalt him. Principle number seven. We are born for trouble in this life, but God's word can see us through it. One for, verse 143 says, Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delights. Job says, yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Now, have you ever been in a campfire and you're burning wood and the sparks come out? You never see them going up right there, right? They go upward and then they find a way to make a hole in your camp, camp chair. Right? But that's, as, as in the campfire, the sparks go upward, we're born to trouble. I don't think anyone here today is willing to deny that life is hard sometimes. And sometimes even extremely difficult. That's, that's life. 
yet man is born to trouble. But when trouble and anguish finds us, there is something in the Word of God that gives us hope and even delight as we're going through that trouble and that anguish. This week I was listening to a podcast in which one of the speakers was talking about when two of her kids died. Uh, both kids had a rare genetic disease and they uh, uh, the disorder, and they both died at six months, a boy and a girl at six months of age. The, 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 boy, the girl was first. The second pregnancy happened even though the husband had got a vasectomy so, because they knew that there was a great likelihood that the next children would have that as well. She spoke of the time of darkness and tremendous pain that she went through. I, I don't think there is a worse pain in this life than to lose a child. I'm thankful that I haven't lost a child, but I think there's no worse pain than that. So she was talking about that darkness and that pain that she went through. And eventually, as she came across Matthew 26 in her daily Bible reading, she read this. This is about the account of Gethsemane. And in Matthew 26, verses 37, 38, it says this. He took, him, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Uh, let me read the NIV, because that's what the version she was using. In verse uh, 26, 30, uh, it says this. Then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's our Savior. This is the creator of the universe who became like us. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And this lady wrote on the side of her margin, on the margin of her Bible, Jesus gets it. Jesus gets it. That is exactly how she felt. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus felt that way as well. He got what she was going through. So when she came to Hebrews 4 in her Bible reading, it made all the sense in the world when there the Holy Spirit says, seeing then that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. Yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word of God got her through the hardest, deepest, darkest pain that she's ever experienced. In her case, because she knew her Savior had experienced that as well. So the Christian understands that life is full of trials, but the Word of God can see us through it. And then foundational principle number eight, and last, we don't need, this is foundational, to the, it's basic to the Christian faith, we don't need an addition or correction to God's Word. What we need is comprehension of God's Word. We don't need an addition or correction to God's Word. What we need is understanding of God's Word. In verse 144, the psalmist says, The righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting, Give me understanding, and I shall live. We don't need new revelations from God. We don't need to hear from God in a way that's not in the Bible. We don't need to add writings to the Bible that are not already there. We don't need another testament like the Mormons say. 
We don't need modern prophets, as some claim to be. We need to understand the word of God that we have in the Bible. That's why preaching and teaching are so important. That's why we practice here. That's been the testimony of this church for 60 years now. We're celebrating our 60th anniversary in 2023. A ministry always based on the proclamation, the understanding of the word of God. We need to understand the word of God that we have in the Bible. And that's why we pray that the Lord would open our eyes to see what is in his word, not something new that's not there. So we, want to, we don't need new revelation. We don't need, we don't need correction or additions. We need to understand what is in the Bible. So here are eight, eight foundational basic principles of Christianity from this passage. God is, is who he says he is. God's word is like himself. It is righteous and trustworthy. God's people have a passion for God's word. God's people can count on his promises. God's people don't mind being held in contempt and being thought as small. God's word is unchangeably right and true in all respects. I think I skipped that one, did I? That's number, seven, the number six. Maybe another sermon. Uh, God's word is unchangeably right and true in all respects. We are born for trouble in this life, but God's word can see us through. We don't need an addition or correction to God's word. What we need is comprehension of God's word. And all this leads the, the, the psalmist to cry out, Give me understanding that I may live. And that's what he's saying. That's, that's what I need to live in the, the Christian life. Your word teach me about you, the triune God. Your word teach me about my Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Your word teaches me how to relate and worship to you. What I need, Lord, is to understand your word, says the psalmist. Are you where the psalmist was? Is your driving desire to understand the word of God? Because it is in it that we find life. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it to our hearts. We pray that you'd, you'd write deeply in the tablets of our hearts that we might live and practice it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.